Good morning. It's uh, great to see you all here this morning. My name is Dave. I'm a pastor here at West Tucson. We do the bulk of the preaching, and it's good to see us all here this morning. Um, yeah, just kind of a mellow morning. I feel like we're in Portland or something with cooler weather. It's almost like if you don't move too much or too fast, you're almost like cool. Um, last night, some of my kids were wearing sweaters. Listen up, and or else this is 
going to happen. And then, and then there's this cycle that we build on. And each and each of them, the last one, so mats, boils, and darkness, there's no morning specifically. It, it happens. Okay, so that's just kind of a big overview of where we'll be this morning. And we're going to walk through that. And I'm going to kind of nerd out. Um, I don't do this a ton. Yes, I nerd out a lot. But I don't. Um, what we're going to do this morning is I'm going to kind of just camp out. And we're going to walk through. And we're just going to see uh, a lot of God's connected, of God's bigness and His splendor and His glory. Okay, because here's what he's doing throughout all of Exodus, and specifically as we walk through these plays, is we see that God is revealing himself. He's, he's making himself known in a world where he's been forgotten. Right? That's been the theme, and that will be the theme all throughout Exodus. And specifically this morning is God is powerfully, creatively, even compassionately, Revealing himself specifically to Pharaoh, who's opposing him, who's hardening himself, who's stiffening his neck. And then he's revealing himself to the Egyptian people, he's revealing himself to his own people, he's revealing himself universally to the world around. And even this morning, he's revealing himself to you and to me, to us. And, and, and a question we come as we come before Exodus each week is how are we implicated? Okay, how are we confronted like Pharaoh is? And how are we encouraged? And so as we now go into this time, let me pray for us as again we consider, God, how are we implicated? How are we hardening ourselves? How are we resisting you? And Lord, how might you encourage us by revealing yourself? Even if our circumstances don't change, if they don't change the way we hope they will. How would you encourage us Lord, how would you convict us through your word? Right, so let's go ahead and pray and trust him to oversee our time together. Heavenly Father, we love you. We need you. We have a lot to dive into this morning, a lot to walk through. And it might be somewhat of even drinking from a fire hose. Just that we're going to get, um, there's going to be a ton coming at us. And, and I, I pray and trust that through your spirit, you will reveal yourself to us, Lord. You will lead us to respond in faith to you, Lord. You will, you will lead us to hear what we need to hear, and then, Lord, to implement, to act as you have us act. Lord, that all of it will be in response to you showing yourself to us, making yourself known, in and through the person and work of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So picking right up, the first warning in Exodus chapter 7, verses 14 through 18. And it starts like this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. So go to Pharaoh in the morning. As he is going out to the water, stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him. And take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent, which right before God turned this staff into a serpent and to kind of began to reveal his power and his glory. So he says, take that staff in your hand. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. 
But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn to blood. The fish of the Nile shall die, and the Nile will sink. And the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. So a couple things for us to pick up here is that the Nile, right? You've probably seen the bumper sticker like, the Nile is not a river in Egypt or whatever. I don't know why they even see the mind. But, right? Well, what we need to understand is that Nile is not just a river that ran through town that was like nice. It was the source of life. Okay, the Nile meant everything. And so the fact that even the Pharaoh, like the most powerful, the king of in the entire world, is there drawing water, the fact that he's at the Nile intentionally here, the author is revealing that he, even Pharaoh, is dependent on this source of life. And so when Moses meets in there, he's saying, listen, you, you, um, I'm about to reveal myself to you that, that even you are dependent on something that I control. And so he does that, and, and so he's going to reveal each one, right, in verse 14, it says, The Lord said to Moses, this phrase um, will happen each time. Every time um, we, they, 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 they get each part of the narrative is God revealing himself to Moses and saying, um, listen, I'm at work, and, and as I said, I'm going to do it through you, and so I'm telling you this, and now you go and be my mouthpiece. That theme will happen each time. And notice, though, in verse 16, something that we can't overlook. In, in chapter 7, verse 16, God says, And you shall say to him, The Lord, right? Lord, powerful, one who turns staffs into serpents, the one who, who, who does all these things. Well, who is he? He's the Lord of the Hebrews. And remember, in that culture, in that time, in that context, the Hebrews are slaves. They're the most marginalized um, weakest, like, flailing, struggling people. And so God, what does he do with his power? He uses it to identify with the most vulnerable, with the, with the weakest, with the most um, underappreciated, undervalued, oppressed people. And that's a theme that we cannot miss. Right? Because in our day, so quickly in our church context or in just our overall world, we, we tend to, to think of like the more power you have, the more you need to drive the nicer car, the more you need to reflect that, the more you need to use your power to kind of prop yourself up and build yourself up, not the nice car to bad, anything like that. Don't, don't hear me wrong. But what we got to see is throughout the entire scriptures, what God does with his power. Think Philippians chapter 2. Which points us to the cross of Jesus. What did Jesus, who is God most high, what does he do with his power? He lays it down. He surrenders it. He doesn't consider it something to grasp, but he gives it up. And he takes on the form of a servant. Ultimately going to the cross, a place of shame, a place of weakness. And that's what God does here in his whole narrative. Is he's flexing his muscle. What is he doing with that? He's identifying with the most marginalized. That's true of God. And so God is revealing himself to Pharaoh and to you and me this morning. We've got to see that that's what he does with his power. And then in verses 22 through 25, the second time something happens, right? Um, and I'm not going to again read through everything. Hopefully you did get a Bible. You took me my word, right? Um, it, it, you see there, the magicians are able to do the same thing once again. The magicians are like, oh, okay, we can 
do this too. But as the theme will continue time and time and time again, their power is limited. You and I want to ask questions, well, how did they do it? Were they tricking? Was it slow by hand? You know, how were they doing it? Were they like, um, what's the guy that they did something? You know, all these magicians that, you know, what were they doing? Was it demonic? Like, it's like, don't focus on the wrong part of the conversation. Like, the point is, even in their power, they, 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 they fail compared to God in His power. Because they can't undo the effects of what's going on here. So a couple things again for us to see. I mentioned that denial is a source of life. And what does God do with that? He turns it to blood. And there's a couple things that we'll build here. But something that we'll see okay, in the first play. And next week, come on, we're talking about the Passover and you will see the connections drawn very clearly as this builds up to God flexing His power and judging and healing and forgiving and reconciling all together. But the first leg and the last leg both have to do with blood. Okay, blood is a source of life. If you're new to this whole Christian thing, we see songs sometimes about blood and it can be weird and it's, what is that all about? And we'll even like take communion and talk about the juice or the wine that reflects the, the blood of the covenant through which our sins are forgiven. Okay, there's, there's a theme here and, this, and then we, we can't miss the connection even here. That the, the fact that God is turning this source of life to blood. It shows his power, but it also is a foreshadowing. Okay, of blood through which life comes. And even though through this, in this, in this case, it turns to, to it stinks. It's also a sign of death. Okay, so this is awakening kind of some new things as God is revealing himself. And then now look in chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, where we move on here to this second play. And what goes on here, and, and it says this. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Let my people go. Okay, we're going to hear that a lot. Okay, by the way, I'm not going to do the Charlton Heston thing and try to repeat what that sounds like. Right? Let my people go. Thank you. I think that was great. So we got a couple laughs of people that know where that, that came from. Okay, let my people go. Why? Just because, no, that they may serve me. That's a theme that will continue as well. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm, okay, recognize that word, underline it even, because I'll come back to it. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and into your meeting bowls. You hear this? It's comprehensive. It's pervasive. All right? These, the effects here will reach all things. The effects of, similarly, the effects of sin aren't just, oh, they, it comes this far. No, it bleeds into everything. Sin, turning away from God, rejecting God, rebelling against God, has affected and infected everything. And these frogs are a picture of that. It's going to permeate every facet of your life. We say all of life is all for Jesus. And that's because we understand that He has come to reconcile all things to Himself. That He rules and reigns over all things. And that's necessary because all things have been affected and infected by sin. How many things? All things. Okay, so we see that here. So let's continue. And in, okay, I already said that. Meaty bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. In verse 3, that word swarm. 
Why, why do we would dismiss that? What's, why would you use that, that word? Well, this theme is going, I want to build on this a ton, but as I said, we've got a lot to cover. But what we'll see throughout these entire plague narratives, multiple things are happening, one of which is a reversing or an undoing of creation. Right? In the very, we'll get there in a moment, but in, in plague number nine, which is what? Darkness. Well, in Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, God says, let there be what? Light. So there's this intentionality going on here. God is revealing that He is the Lord of creation, that He brings goodness. If He says, let there be light, and He calls it good, and, and then and we'll see there's darkness. Well, that same word, right, it says swarm, in Genesis chapter 1, verses 20 through 21, when God creates the seas and all the things that are in it, it says in verse 21, So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm. The same imagery that God in His beauty and His creativity and His blessing is creating all things and that, and that there is a goodness that these, these waters are filled with swarming creatures. But now, in God's judgment, still God, sovereignly controlling over all things, will bring swarms of frogs. Now, what are frogs? Like, frogs are silly, right? They're, they're kind of these, like, goofy little, like, why not something else? Why not, I don't know, snakes, right? I mean, these are where I've done snakes. But we'll, we'll connect these dots again, but, but there's such intentionality. One thing is that one of the primary Egyptian gods, right, God with a little lowercase g, but still something that shaped their lives, that a god of fertility looked like a frog. There, there was the head of it had the face of a frog. And right, the Nile, a source of life, so that from this apparent source of life, the Nile, would come these frogs. But not blessing, not bringing life, but as a curse. Alright, and then God shows by initiating it and by undoing it, by stopping it, He's the source of life. He's the source of fertility. He's the one in control, not this silly little frog-faced God that you offer your sacrifices to and put your hope in. So God is undoing creation. He's revealing His power. But then in verse 7, again, the magicians do the same thing. It's limited, but they can still keep up. Right? That's got to be frustrating for Moses and Aaron. Thus says the Lord. He said this. Boom, frogs. And then these magicians show up and they're like, oh yeah, you know, whatever they do with it, boom, smoke, you know, powder, whatever, um, you know, look over there, Superman, and they do so. Who knows how they do it? But either way, it's like, oh, well, they can do it too. And this continuing theme of um, Pharaoh's heart hardens. And so then, now this next play comes up. And again, this one is the first of three with no mourning. So now in chapter 8, verses 16 through 19, this third plague comes, the plague of gnats. So let me read this as it unfolds. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth. So again, notice here, God's speaking to Moses, but he's saying, say to Aaron. Okay, just take note of that. This is all part of the drinking out of a fire. Those are the cool things that we'll see. Right now and thus far, Aaron has been intimately, actively involved. 
right? And he uses the staff, right? So hold out this staff, strike the dust of the earth so that it may become mass in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. I was in a meeting this morning in a coffee shop, and there were like two flies, and they were maddening. <laughs> this is all the dust is turning on to gnats. I mean, those of you who know me, I would go berserk. Okay, I'm sure I'm not alone here, but just imagine the oppressiveness there. And the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Finally, the magicians were announced. They tap out. Alright, what comes to mind with me? Some of you guys know um, the lead pastor redemption can be um, Richard Carlos Stewart, who played football up at ASU, and um, even though he went there, he's actually very strong, very good, great football player at ASU. But, um, and he's just a stud. And you guys know me a little bit. I, I don't always see myself as I should. I have a little bit of a Napoleon complex and kind of view myself not in light of reality. Well, he and I got to go to Nigeria. And um, we were like, hey, let's work out something together. We couldn't really go out much in the hotel, so we kind of hung out and worked out in the hotel when we weren't in the meetings and things. And he put this workout together that was going to be like 40 minutes long. And at the start, and he even warned me about this, but at the start, he's like, yeah, so we're just going to do this, and it's going to cycle through, and we'll just do the cycles as many times as we can in that 40 minute chunk. And he's like, you're going like, to need to pace yourself. And we did about five or six workouts each cycle. And, like, the first cycle, I got in there, I got a little bit cocky. I was like, oh, hey, Mr. Carter, like, look, I, I probably look like Ricardo right now. I don't know. I mean, um, and after, like, a couple minutes, I like, was like, I can't hang. Like, there was, I honestly thought after, like, seriously, two minutes, how in the world is this going to continue for 40 minutes? And he just kept on the next level. He just kept the dude just going, going, going. And I... Um, to say it was, it was a moment of, of humbling for me. And that's kind of this picture here of like, they're keeping up, they're keeping up, but eventually, right, God will make himself known. Okay, God, when God says in the Ten Commandments, you shall have, there are no other gods before me, it's like no other gods in my midst, you're going to be tempted to think, oh, wealth, fame, Sexual pleasure, other people's approval, control, um, whatever it is, you're going to think these things, you're coveting, you're going to think those things can kind of keep up with me, they can, they can supply, they can do what I can do, they can be the source of life that, that I can be, but in the end, don't even try, have no other gods that the picture is in my midst or before my face, because it, nothing and no one can ever keep up with me. So find your sense of source of, of life, your, your sense of hope in God and in God alone. And we see that here on display as these magicians, these false gods of Egypt are just getting exposed. They can't keep up. And that's beautiful. And that should look, look lead us to awe and wonder and potentially implicate us, right? Convict us and hopefully also encourage us. 
And now let's pick up as we continue the second theme or broader warning there you see verses 8 through 23. I'm sorry, verses 20 through 23. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself. I just love the way said, by the way. Like, rise up, right? Like, Encourage yourself. Step, I'll stop there because I have all the things. Are, but like, get ready. Hey, come on. Like, look, I've got plans for you right now. And there's a similar thing as he's calling Pharaoh to cast. It's similar when he um, calls Job to cast. When he's about to remind him of who he is and his power. He's like, listen, get ready. I'm about to do some work. Okay, and so I hope that's the image that comes on the show. Rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh. Take heart, messenger of God. I'm, I'm continuing to have plans to go and call out Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me. Right? Does that sound familiar? Continue theme. God's not going to relent. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses. And the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies. Not two flies, not one little pesky fly. Filled, inundated in all of life. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Joshua, where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there. That you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow this sign will happen. So I take it to the bank. I will give you the time. I will give you the day. It's going to happen. God's giving, right? He's giving you something that you can take to the bank. You can trust Him on. He's going to do this thing. And this is the first time, okay, we don't always notice, this is the first time that God's people are spared from these, this judgment. All the, the gnats, okay, presumably God's people experience that as well, that, that judgment. Now, the, this time, number four through number nine, or even number ten, we'll get there next week, but there's a division. God's people won't experience this judgment, but the Egyptians will. Specifically, Pharaoh will and all the people that he represents that he's called to lead. And he doesn't lead like Jesus. He doesn't lay down his rights for the good of those. He, he says, right, Jesus says he came not to be served, but to serve. But Pharaoh doesn't consider all the people who depend on his leadership. And how are we implicated? All of us in this room lead in some way. What do we do with our leadership? What do we do with our power, with our influence? Do we consider how our decisions are affecting and impacting everyone who depends on us, everyone that we lead? Right there, there's implication. I trust the Holy Spirit is doing the work that only He can do. I don't need to connect the dots too much. I'll just share you. I'm implicated. I'm convicted as I consider Pharaoh. And then I look to Jesus and see what Jesus does with His leadership and what Pharaoh does with His. Well, Pharaoh doesn't really care about the people that He leads. And in verses 25 through 28, Pharaoh finally relents. He actually pleads for help. But he gives conditions. All right, I want to pause here for a moment and consider, because we've gotten really used to, in our kind of Christian culture in the U.S. right now, 
perhaps even here. And I want to tell you, maybe even I have fallen prey to wanting to give a really palatable, kind of a, an, an, a, a very digestible version of Jesus that'll fit neatly into your life and then will keep you coming back and keep you tithing and keep you coming to our groups and being a part of this. Sometimes we refer to this as an organization. Kind of, my wife and I are trying to kind of cause some, some pause. Like, oh, there's organizational need and like leadership and elements, but is that really what we're doing here? Like, like there, there should be a, a, a sense here of listening. No, Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. I know we've gotten used to a cross that can have, you know, silver and diamonds and look kind of pretty, but. No, when he's talking about it, it's it's there's sacrifice, there's death, there, there's there's suffering. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says he warns people, and I want I think we need to look at Pharaoh here and see where he's like, okay, God, okay, I'll, I'll relent, I'll surrender, I'll repent, if you will, to a degree, but it's got to look like this. I'll do it this way. Well, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, listen. The road that leads to death is really wide and easy. And those who find it are many. But the road that leads to life is narrow and difficult. And those who find it are few. As we see, God doesn't relent. In love, God doesn't say, okay, I'll I'll give you that. Okay, you want to trust me? You want to pray a prayer to, and give your life to me? You want to be a part of the community? You want to do these things and kind of fit me in where, where it works for you? No, you want to you give your life to me as Savior but not Lord? That's not the Bible. That wouldn't be good news either, by the way. Okay, God knows what we need. And He doesn't just give into the conditions that we tend to come with. He loves us too much for that. And we see that favor time and time again. At times, looks like he's repenting, but there's always a condition. And God is too good to submit to our conditions. Amen? So with that, now we continue. And we look here. Oh, let me just point something else out, because again, this is fun. Notice too, that this time... In place number four through seven now, there's no staff involved. Right? Because the people, God's people, Pharaoh also, all everyone else would be so quick, right? We make it, John Thomas is right, the human heart is an idol factory. We can miss God and his power and his glory for so many things and could so quickly be, oh, um, that staff is, dude, that staff has all the power. I'm gonna get that staff. Where do I get up? Where where do I get a hold of one of those. I can do big things if I can only get one of those stacks. So what does God do in play four through seven? I don't think that's silly sick. That's sick. I'm the one with the power. Okay, does God use that? Yes. With intentionality and purpose. But 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 does he need it? No. And we can be so quick as a church to think, oh, we need this. We need more of this. We need that that person, that leader, that program, those things, and those things can be really good, right? And this organization is really good. But if we start to depend on that, we start to think, oh, that's what, that's what this church, once we do more of that, once we keep 
the young people come in. Whatever it is, you can fill in the blank. And God said, no, no, no. I will do what I will do. I am making myself known. And you find hope and peace and who you are, your identity and your purpose in the fact that you are mine. That's God's message. Always. And so now we continue on. This fifth plague in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. I'm not going to walk through this here, but a couple things. Um, first of all, this is the first place that death now comes. The animals die. Okay, in Genesis chapter 3, when sin enters in, when not God, when we turn away from God, and we don't want to follow God and find our identity and our purpose in Him, the result is death. That's a relationships. That's a self-identity. Right? Shame comes into the picture. Fig leaves. And in this case, we see now again the pervasive sin, or effects of sin, is death. God gave animals. God gave, gave life. And now we see that the source of life, animals, that God gave um, humans the responsibility to steward and to lead over and to, to, to write to find nourishment in and all these different things. Well, now God reveals His power and then He's continuing to undo the good work of creation. He's reversing that now. We see death come in the picture. And then now pick up in chapter 9, verses 8 through 12. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw them in the air in the sight of Pharaoh. Who's doing it now? Pharaoh. He's grown. Or I'm sorry. Remember, I told you last week I do that. Moses, not Pharaoh. Moses is now, he's growing as a leader. Right? Early on, he hid behind Aaron. I've got a stutter. Right? I, I can't do this, God. I need Aaron to step up and do it instead. And so God, right, um, gives him grace and uses Aaron, but he continues to call Moses into the role that he is given him. And so he calls Moses to step up and to grow. And now Moses starts to be involved with speaking to and interacting with Pharaoh. So just another one of the things for us not to miss. But also notice here that they get handfuls of soot of from the kiln. Okay, we can't we can't miss that. So pick up in verse ten. So they took soot from the kiln and stood before Pharaoh and Moses, threw it in the air, and it became boils breaking out in sores on man and beast. Again, maddening, right? And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils came upon the magicians and upon all the Egyptians. But the Lord sovereignly in the heart of Pharaoh, and he did not listen to them as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Again, I don't want to spend so much time here, but hear me now, okay? I need to make sure we're seeing this. Why would God do it this way? Why not go back to using the dust like he did with the gnats? Why not pick up some dust? Why go and pick up silk from a kiln, right? We would miss this. What is that? I don't even know what a kiln is. Some of you might. I'm like, what is that? Well, these Hebrew slaves would know really well what a kiln was. Right? Do you remember back earlier when their life was just getting worse when Moses kind of built up the courage and stood before Pharaoh and said, you know, God says, let my people go and so they can go serve me. And Pharaoh's like, well, they're weak and lazy. And so, yeah, life's been hard, but I'm going to keep 
piling it on, and we talk about how that likely it, it, we can feel that many of us in this congregation can I take another morning when I wake up with my heart beating so fast, and I, 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 it's hard to wake up out of breath. And then you get a call that you lost a job or relationship, or it's just exhausting. Right? And in that moment, like some of us are in that moment right now, and we think, does God even see? Is God doing anything about that? I, in love, pastorally, I want to say yes, but I also want to tell you, I don't know how. But when we look here, hopefully we can be encouraged by seeing that God in His creativity, where does He, where does He take Moses to, 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 to reveal His power and His goodness and by making life hard on Pharaoh? He takes them to the place of their exhaustion. Where His people have suffered, God says, I, I see you. Those kilns have been so exhausting for you, have been a source of slavery for you, a source of anxiety and exhaustion. And I'm gonna take, I'm gonna use that dust, and I'm gonna I'm gonna use that to now set you free. I'm gonna use that to reveal who I am and to eventually um, look, let you go and serve me and worship me as your people. Because God goes to that place of kiln where where these people were enslaved and they knew all too well soot. They were covered in it. They hated it. And what does God now do? He uses Moses to grab handfuls of it and then to throw it in the air. And then God uses that to now show his identification with his people who have been enslaved, who have been oppressed. And then the third and final overarching warning in chapter 9, verses 13 through 19. Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go, that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my place on you yourself. You're going to feel this, Pharaoh, and on your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put you on my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. Just pause there for a moment. To me, it's screaming when Jesus stood before Pilate, right when, that, when Jesus was arrested before he would go to the cross and Pilate's like, do you know how much power I have? And Jesus is like, silly Pilate. Alright? The, the Father could have, I could right now call on angels and they would come and you would wet your pants. Okay, but I won't do that because God the Father is so sovereignly in control and Jesus says, right now, my will, but your will. He submits to the will of the Father. He trusts God's good plan even as he's faced with shameful, brutal death on the cross. So similarly here, God says, listen, I could have wiped you out, but my purposes are continuing to go forward. That can be frustrating for us. But hopefully it can also be hopeful. God has a plan. He has a purpose. He's at work. Even when we don't see it. And what is that? He says, to show you my power so that my name can be proclaimed in all the earth. And this is, just again, if you're taking notes, I want to connect these out to Genesis chapter 12. When God focuses in on one man, Abraham, and he says, listen, 
I will raise up a name for you and the entire world will be blessed. The entire earth will be blessed. And he said, those who bless you will be blessed and those who dishonor you, I will curse. Well, what is God doing here now? Over 400 years after God made that promise, he's blessing those who bless. He's cursing those who curse. He's again revealing his plans going forward. And then in chapter 9, verses 13 through 35, I'm again not going not to read through this or count out here, but I want you to see he uses a lot of language of earth and all the earth. For by now, my, my hand will strike your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. And there's all this language of the earth and it's reminding us of God, the God of creation. And just to connect the dots in Romans chapter 1, in the New Testament, when God talks about um, him, him revealing Himself, revealing His power, revealing His, his, his judgment on, on all things through the creation of the world, He's made Himself known, so there's no excuse. Okay, there's a direct connection here, and it should awaken our understanding of God, the God of all creation. And then the eighth play, Wokus. Let me just read what happens here. He now says, and this is similar to what we did last week, in chapter 10, verse 2. He says, this new plague will come on. These signs will begin. He says, that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt partially with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. Again, there's this understanding. Generation will pass on to generation. Don't forget Tell the story. God's saying, this struggle, this judgment, these plagues. Yes, God's working in the moment right now, but again, I hope this encourages us right now, church. As we step back, as unbearable as it is, where we can find God, where am I right now in your story? What are you doing? His message right now is, you might not understand right now, but you can tell your sons and their sons and future generations will know. Pause and remember and tell of who God is and what He's doing. And wherever you find yourself, find comfort, find hope, find peace, find, find understanding, even when it's difficult. And then ultimately now, we come up to this ninth plague. And I referred to it earlier, but I'm going to read you this part. Chapter 10, verse 21. The Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over all the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. Now here it is. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, I referred to it earlier, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. That's the same Hebrew phrase as what we just read. God's people have light. Okay, you're again seeing this narrative here. As we separate from God, all the goodness of creation is undone. Ultimately leads to darkness. Next week, ultimately leads to death. But when you're God's, when you belong to Him, when you're one of His people, there's life. As we'll get to see next week, there's life. 
And then one other thing, perhaps we can make this image known. Can you go ahead and throw this up here? I wanted to connect the dots of what we've seen all throughout. And I'm not going to use all the names. I'm not going to walk through. But you see here, every play that we just walked through, number one through nine, the, the, the Nile turns to blood, the frogs, the gnats, the flies, the death of the livestock, the boils, the hail, the locusts, the darkness. I walked through and I tried to connect some of the dots, and there were even more dots to be connected. But one of the most significant ones is, again, why flies? Oh, well, the god Ray. Not like Ray, the Dr. Golden Sun, you know, right? But the sun god, right? Possibly represented by the fly. Why darkness? Oh, the sun god, Ray, they're one of their primary god in Egypt. Why frogs? Oh, that was their fertility god, the goddess of birth. In his intentionality and wisdom and power, we see God. Executing these plans, this judgment, with such intentionality. These gods that you center your life around, Egypt, Pharaoh, anyone who's not my people, anyone who doesn't find their sense of identity and purpose in me, listen, they're weak. They can't keep up. They might for a short time, but they'll eventually fail. God puts them on blast. He shows them, he knocks them down time and time and time again. Now, as we land the plane here, let me just acknowledge, it's really easy for us to sit in our high horse and be like, how silly, a frog, a god of, like, who's, who trusts gods, right? We don't have gods. We don't have bulls and bears, elephants and donkeys. Come on. Playboy bunnies. Well, we don't have false gods. We, and we do. And we're a little closer to Egypt than we want to acknowledge. We even have little animal representations of our gods. And the message, right, as we close right now, is again, how do you and I respond to the God who's making himself known, good and powerful? How are you implicated? How are you encouraged? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we come before you now and ask you to lead us through your spirit or to respond appropriately however you would have us respond. Lord, where do we need to be convicted and implicated? Where do we need to name, recognize the false gods that we have trusted in, that we think are on equal or even greater footing than you? Lord, we say we trust you. We sing songs about it, but then when the stock market dips, when our fertility is in question, whatever it might be, we, we, we turn from you. We, 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 we curse you. We look elsewhere. But Lord, also, where might you encourage us? Where are you showing us how you see? You hear the groanings of your people. You're purposely and intimately and powerfully at work, even when we don't see. So again, we just submit now. We ask you to lead us to respond however you would have us do. In Jesus' name.